New York City Arts Radio. Here's the thing. Think heavy and bold. Well, fuck. I mean, we're in New York. Everybody works. I'm an artist and I'm a New Yorker. In every generation, bring something else. That, that's the talent run by artists. See what else we can do with it. Experience the possibilities of life through art. Thank you for listening to New York City Arts Radio. New York City Arts Radio covers stories about what it is to be a visual artist. Generations of paintings and photos allow a very limited and purely visual view of the artist's studio. Even still, we pour over those legendary images of studios occupied by Jean Arc, Francis Bacon, Balthus, Louis Bourgeois, Constantine Bernalusi, Alberto Giacometti, Barbara Hepworth, Hess, Donald Judd, Frida Kahlo, Agnes Martin, Henri Matisse, Joan Miro, Joan Mitchell, Alice Neal, Asama Noguchi, Giorgio O'Keefe, Pablo Picasso, or Cy Twombly, to name a few. Through those images, we are trying to gain some knowledge of what the artists were like, their surroundings, culture, habits, really, their studio experience. What was it like to be there? Public access to the sacred studio experience is limited. In New York, there's Donald Judd's Soho Studio Home and Jackson Pollock's East Hampton Spring Studio, the one with the splattered floor. But the ideal is to be invited into the studio of a contemporary living artist as a collector or curator to be able to participate in the experience while adding your part to a new history. This episode, the first part of Studio, we go inside two studios to open the lid onto the theme of what the contemporary studio experience involves. This conversation is between myself and two very different multimedia artists, Pablo Johnsana and Alberto Borea. They are both transplants to New York City. This is no coincidence as this is my re-inauguration show of New York City Arts Radio since my own fairly recent move to Barcelona, Spain. Also, considering the current conversations on immigration, I dedicate this show to my fellow artist immigrants. Throughout, in the form of an audio commonplace book, I'll refer to the life of two of my favorite painters from the same generation who sought refuge in New York City, Willem de Kooning and Philip Guston. Their inclusion is an effort to show the extreme comparisons between the current situation and the good old days when New York City lofts were abundant and inexpensive. Every artist has a different making practice. Some use studios, and then there are other variations, like the institutional critique of artist Daniel Buren. Buren personally rejected the use of a studio as part of his process. His work is made in the world at large. That way, he is able to create in the space in which the work will ultimately be shown, and therefore, be closer to the ultimate truth of the art, which is the thesis of his 1971 essay, The Function of the Studio. I don't reject his thesis, but the studio is indispensable to most, a basic necessity. Quote, adding to de Kooning's anxiety was his unfinished studio. The studio had always been his touchstone. Without one, he was essentially homeless. However, because Buren so accurately describes the function and physical qualities of the studio, I've included those passages. And that is where we begin. What is the function of the studio? One, it is a place where the work originates. The studio is the unique space of production. Two, it is generally a private place, an ivory tower perhaps. Three, it is a stationary place where portable objects are produced. Hi, Alison. How's it going? That's Pablo, and this is his recollection of how we met. I think it was like a couple years ago. We were in an opening. We were talking with another artist, a friend of mine, Alberto Borea, and he was a friend of you, so he introduced us. You'll hear from Alberto in a few minutes. I'm Pablo Llanzana, an artist, a visual artist from Chile. I'm a painter and a sculptor. I got a scholarship 
and then I get into a grant program called ICP. International Studio and Curatorial Program, ISCP. That program was for one year, so after that I tried setting up everything for my career here in the States. Pablo is originally from Santiago, Chile, though I must mention, considering my new home, his surname is in fact Catalan. We are in my studio located between Clinton Hill and Nevillar, studio home. That is how, how we call it here, studio or home. animal house. The people wrote that on the, on the door. Everyone came here, it's like, okay, I'm gonna get my best energy to do my best work. So they wrote it, animal house. I didn't see it, you're gonna have to point it out. Right. I'm gonna show you later. <laughs> Can you describe yourself as an artist and also describe your work that you make? It's what I drink every day, I mean, it's everything. I remember since child having a pen on my hands and drawing, make drawings everywhere. I think I was starting making drawings before to talk. So it was really easy to me to feel it in a way free. Drawing and then I started to paint, it was even better. So if that can describe it as an artist, yes, I'm an artist. Because all the time I've been doing that. I can live without this. What I'm doing with my work right now, I'm very interested in many things, but if you see the work that I have here in my studio, I used to work with social violence in New York on the 60s and 70s with many artists that were they doing something with the stretchers, making new shapes, breaking up the canvases. So right now what I'm trying to be more relative with the violence is to make the boundary between violence and architecture together. The material that the architecture it is right now and the shapes that it has is very very violent. I mean it's not I mean I'm not talking about the park but one building for example the all the material that are has and the shape that it has you can see in my work too. I'm looking at some of the pieces now there are two canvases that are three-dimensional they're being ripped apart, but we're wondering how they got to, is there someone pushing from the inside, pulling from either side? Yeah, it's like someone with a mega punch behind. You can see it. I like that, yeah. mega punch. Mega punch behind the pacandas. You don't know really how they were breaking up. It's a kind of painting and sculpture are coming together. And I think it's powerful when you get into and you see the dimension and the color on it and it's a flash, it's like, it's pointing you, it's saying something very real. So we're in Animal House. Can you describe this space physically? For example, in front of us is a window that's open. Oh, okay. Yeah, we are very close to the highway, so we can listen every day. The tracks, motorcycle, it's a very factory area. The dust as well is coming together with industrial and some disgusting smells around. I mean, this is a big building and we are around 50 artists and another 15 factories about everything, furnitures mostly. So it's a kind of mix of oil, acid, toxic from everywhere. It's a kind of party, really, really toxic party. Quoting again from Daniel Buren, who describes the archetype of the artist's studio. What does it look like, physically, architecturally? The studio is not just any hideaway, any room. Two specific types may be distinguished. One, 
the European type, modeled upon the Parisian studio of the turn of the century. This type is usually rather large and is characterized primarily by its high ceilings, a minimum of four meters. Sometimes there is a balcony to increase the distance between the viewer and the work. The door allows large works to enter and to exit. Sculptor studios are on the ground floor, painters on the top floor. In the latter, the lighting is natural, usually diffused by windows oriented toward the north so as to receive the most even and subdued illumination. Two, the American type of more recent origin. Uh, let me interrupt with his own note here. We are speaking of New York, okay? Okay, continuing on. This type is rarely built according to specification, but located as it is in reclaimed lofts, it is generally much larger than its European counterpart. Not necessarily higher, but longer and wider. Wall and floor space are abundant. Natural illumination plays a negligible role since the studio is lit by electricity both night and day if necessary. End of passage. In the beginning, artists often put up with deplorable studio conditions for which they pay high rental prices. Often still, studios don't have heat, they're in less desirable, sometimes dangerous neighborhoods, tiny in size, require long commutes to get to, and often have the delights of vermin or other remnants upon arrival. Or, in Pablo's case, toxic odors. We all have our limits, that happens to be mine. If you get into my studio, the first you can see is the front window which is about all the wall and then next wall we have a table with more materials and toxic industrial things. <laughs> this is where Pablo unjustly simplified the description of the scene. In between the window and the table were five impactful paintings, some finished and some into months of process, though all complex in structure. These paintings are not just one pictorial plane, they reach out into the studio space off the wall with volume and vibrating, glossy, almost phosphorescent pigmentation. From the aggressive gestures in which this thick layered paint was applied, it was everywhere. The painter, Amy Silman wrote, a painting studio is a kind of haphazard chemistry lab where non-scientists work like medieval alchemists with scant protection from treacherous materials like lead, arsenic, or benzene. And in between all of those paintings are things, plastic covered with resin of many colors, more little paintings, buckets filled with things, materials, cool. and more materials. More material. yes. Too many materials. I mean, I invest all my money in materials. Most of us artists are materials freaks. From early on in Willem de Kooning's career, and within his first days with Sydney Janus Gallery, quote, Janus immediately began advancing de Kooning money for the purchase of painting supplies. De Kooning might accept living on catsup, but considered it intolerable to starve his palate. I got ahead of myself. More materials and sustenance in another episode. So it does smell industrial in here, maybe because the window's open, but also because of the work you're making. You have four wet paintings. Where's the fan? Uh, there it is. You need a bigger fan. He's pointing to a tiny fan it's on the wall. Good. It's good. I have one in there. Right now it's not on, but this one is powerful. We spend day in and day out plus in the studio. The space has to be right in so many ways, just like any other type of real estate. So many artists are priced out of their studio spaces. To give you an idea, here is a selection of monthly rental rates from all around the city using listings from the service listingsproject.com. The Lower East Side had the most expensive spaces I came across at $7.5 per square foot. $1,200 for a 160-square-foot space. Bushwick offers a lower price entry at $375 for 110 square feet. 
Split between de Kooning and another artist, their Greenwich Village studio rent in 1948 was $35 a month. With inflation, that's about $355. But when you add in New York City real estate variables for that space, which I speculate was at least 1,000 square feet between the two of them, would now cost over $8,000 a month according to the current rates in Greenwich Village. That is, if you could even find that kind of available space. More variables to consider when renting a studio are ceiling height, elevator access for heavy lifting in and out, natural light and ventilation, privacy, bathroom and hot water access, and the support of the surrounding artist community. Pablo explains the parts of his studio that are important to him. The environment, the environment more than the space. I mean, if you walk around, you can see all the dust on the industrial factory, and that's a really influential on my work right now. I live with that. The space is important because you have a size, so it's the size of your work too, so it's comparative. Would you mind talking about the size of your work in relation to the size of yes, your studio? Sure. I don't know how many square feet are here, but it's not important. But this is a square, and I think all my work is a square right now, and has the aural proportional. It came with, in my blood, Seccion Aurea. Seccion Aurea is Castellano for golden section, or golden mean, as defined as the name given to an irrational proportion, known at least since Euclid, which has often been thought to possess some aesthetic virtue in itself, some hidden harmonic proportion in tune with the universe. It is defined as a line which is divided in such a way that the smaller part is to the larger part is to the larger as the larger is to the whole. Mathematically, AB cut at C so that CB is to AC as AC is to AB. If you could show in a space that was the size of your studio, would that be ideal for you? Yes, yes, that would be perfect. There are many ideals of a studio. What would also be perfect is the studio de Kooning had built. He said, I designed it like a loft. I guess I was one of the first painters in New York to have a loft back in 1930. Now I wanted this feeling of great open space. The whole thing was really a workman's dream. The studio is becoming more than a place just to make work. It's, it's having an influence on the work that you're making. Yes, yes it is. I know where it came in my, my colors on my work. It used to be black and white, and right now are very colorful power palettes. And I don't see anything right now on my environment like this. So I think I've been having to try getting those colors from outside. And this is because I live here and I don't have those colors, so I think I need it to see it. Mm. These colors are literally the opposite of what is happening outside. Everything's yeah. muted outside and, really and muted. dull. Yes, cement uh, is very mute. It's a perfect word. And those colors are orange, blue, white, yeah, green. They're not only bright, but they're fluorescent. And if white could be fluorescent, that would be fluorescent white. Yes, of course. And together makes the power my work when they come next to each other. Unlike Buren, Pablo makes his work in his studio and exhibits it elsewhere. But since Pablo is taking not only inspiration, but context from his surrounding area and beyond to create his work, it can later be shown in a gallery that has the same surroundings the same muted landscape, in turn, relating to the work. This may be a stretch, but I'm putting it out there. Alberto Barrea explains how we met through our mutual friend. Hello, Alison. How's it going? We met in Ernesto Burgos' opening. It was his show at the couches. 
in a Kid Warble gallery. Uh, I'm Alberto Borea. I'm uh, originally from Lima, Peru. I work in Brooklyn, New York. I'm an artist. I work with mixed media, sculptures and everything. Well, paintings, I don't know, but uh, yeah, a lot of collages and whatever comes to my mind. My work is not the same all the time. I change a lot the formats I use, the ways I present my work, but I try to dialogue with the same concepts and the same kind of obsessions that I have. I work a lot with uh, history and social and political contents. We are in Brooklyn, New York, I guess, in Greenpoint. Well, this is my studio and my house now. We're sitting in one of your living rooms right now, and I can actually see one of the pieces that you made. Sol, do you want to describe that piece? Yeah, what I tried to do uh, at the LMCC was, uh, I was thinking about the building itself and the financial district and the Lower Manhattan. LMCC is Lower Manhattan Cultural Council, where Alberto had been granted a studio residency. I will go over studio residencies in depth another time. But in essence, it is a studio space, sometimes with room and board, given to artists to create a specific project or simply as an award for a set amount of time. LMCC just moved there, so you can see in, the, in that floor all the desks, a huge corporate space, which now is just like a ruin or it's empty. So right. for me, the, the thing was to create something that can dialogue with that place. So all my, the works I developed there were talking a, a little bit about the history of Lower Manhattan and the place I, I was working in. So it was a lot about space and place. I think just Golden Sachs donate that place for LMCC, which is great because we have this huge loft. All the floor is for us, so it was a great place to work. Kind of weird, but really inspiring. I mean, all my work is about content, context, where I'm working on, where am I at that moment, and what are the materials that I'm going to use for to have a dialogue. What I did in that, in that office space is I just removed the carpet. The place ha was all gray, a dead floor, a dead place. So the, the people tried to, to put a little bit of life in there and they brought this yellow carpet, which I love the color, the color was amazing. So what I did is I removed the carpet, creating a, the word soul, which means sun. The photograph on the left is the negative space of the word soul, and the photograph on the right is the positive space of the carpet saying soul in an empty room with a gray floor. Alberto used his then studio as the production place and home of the work, being true to the art. Though ultimately, he later documented the scene as an object to be exhibited later on, since the work no longer exists in its true setting. I'll quote Daniel Buren in regards to the fate of work made in the studio. It is in the studio, and only in the studio, that it is the closest to its own reality, a reality from which it will continue to distance itself. If the work of art remains in the studio, however, it is the artist that risks death from starvation. The work is thus totally foreign to the world into which it is welcomed." End quote. The effect of place is significant. It is this very reality that Pablo and Alberto question in their studios and in their work. That doesn't bring them to reject the use of a studio, it just becomes part. About Juan Miró, quote, His temporary exile in Palma, Mallorca, Spain, made him aware of the difference between the soft light of the island and the harsh landscape of Monroish. 
He realized that the two were complementary and equally necessary to his vision. There was always a connection between the external landscape and internal for Miro. Your work is often made in relation to the space or the place where you're located. Can you describe that process? How is my process? Normally what I do is I love to walk around the city or around the place where I am. I think walking is it's a practice I normally do. It's a, it's a practice that I, I do every day or I, I try to walk. Think about anything or nothing, you know, I just walk and I like to observe where I am and house the people, the architecture, the garbage. I'm, I'm always looking at the floor and trying to find things and trying to find materials. That's number one, I would, I'll say, like walking and looking at the floor. Number two is then I get interested by an object. I begin to think about the object constantly, maybe a week, maybe two weeks. And if it continues for a month, I bring it to my studio. That was number two, <laughs> right? <laughs> then uh, number three, when I'm obsessed with an object that I don't understand and it's already in my studio, I begin to look at it and, under and try to understand why, why it's in my studio and why I brought it to my studio. I'll, I'll say it's like a cubist way of looking the object. So I try to understand the object anthropologically, like psychologically, historically, and because existentially, why, how can I relate to that object and why that object is talking to me and why I'm trying to talk with the object about another thing. After that, I just find a reason, me and the object, we find the reason together. So it's kind of a relationship that we are having at that time. It's gonna come through a installation or maybe a, a photograph of the object or maybe it's gonna be just the object in itself. Basically, that's the way or that's the process with the materials and that's why it's so important for me. I'm really like a sculpture in some way. I relate more with a sculpture and with material, the material feeling of touching things and, and transforming objects. Usually your process actually begins outside of the studio. We may spend exorbitant, relentless hours in the studio, but we do leave and we do keep our eyes open to the gifts the world has to offer. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, my, my process is outside the studio. My process is in everyday's life. I'm not like a studio mouse, studio rat, like all the time in the studio. Like, no, 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 no. I like to like walk around like go to events, be on the subway, travel or, or like just read the newspaper or like also things happen when I'm in the studio, but that's the number two or number three or number four. Mm -hmm. But number one and it's uh which takes more time is to be in outside. It's being outside is the the longest process to find my ideas or to find why I wanna work in something. Sometimes it happens when I'm in the studio that I realize something. But normally it's when I'm like walking that I find things that are interesting for me. In referring to de Kooning's combined loft and studio space, one friend called it the tidiest, neatest place I've ever seen. In the reflected light, the floor appears gleaming and spotless. As long as he lived on 22nd Street, de Kooning would knock off work early on Saturdays in order to scrub down his loft. He loved a clean slate. Back to Pablo, my fellow painter and studio rat, who describes what he likes about his space. Personally, I, like de Kooning, happen to love a clean, minimally filled, well-lit space to start my work. Well, I was before in a basement. 
a big basement. It was a, that was really ugly environment because you don't have any window there. People can love to work there because you can be really focused on your work, but I really need to see outside. So I find this and I have a beautiful window. I don't see too many things. Obviously, I have air, fresh air. The most I like is the community that we have here. Mostly we are all in silence. We're really focused. What I like is we are a big community of artists and we go into the supermarket. You can see everyone wearing pants and shoes with paint on it and her, his hands are dirty. So that's the thing that I really love too. It's typical in New York that people don't talk to their neighbors. I really love to talk to people, yeah. So right now, I avoid that, those situations. So I became the same guy. I don't talk with anybody. Now, no, you're, think, now you're really part of the neighborhood. No, now no, you're no, really no, in New York. No, 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 no. I mean, I, I still, I, I pursued my, my goal to try to get a word, at least one hello. Why come to New York City, I asked Alberto. Oh, it was because of residencies. I, it just made more sense for me to stay here because of all the friends that I have here and uh, the dialogue with other artists and, you know, the art world is great here. Are you a solitary worker? Yeah, I'm a solitary worker, yeah. Yeah, I think I am. Some artists' studios are known for being especially social, such as with artist Ray Smith as explained in season one, episode one of this show. In de Kooning's biography, it reads, quote, by the late 1930s, the artists' informal system of dropping in on each other's studios to say hello and chat about works in progress was an essential part of the day. Since nobody had a phone, visitors would announce themselves by yelling up to the open windows of the studio above. Ring me up! I asked Alberto who he lets into his studio. I really enjoy, like, talking with some good friends or close friends about something and they can bring my, my ideas into another level or make me realize that I, I'm thinking something that it's not what it is. And they're like, you're, don't bullshit me, man. You're not talking about that. You're talking about another thing, you know? And I was like, oh my God, yeah, you know, yeah, that's right. And then you, you know, then you understand your work better because others understand you sometimes better than yourself. Artists can be extremely selective when it comes to studio visits. Too many external opinions aren't helpful, especially when a work isn't yet complete. And visits from people who aren't well-versed in speaking about or looking at art can be exhausting. Honestly, taking up valuable studio time. I asked the same of Pablo, who he lets into his lab. This is my laboratory, I work here, I make my, my work, obviously, and I don't have any problem. I mean, in the past, I really had the problem to show my process. But right now, it's funny how some artists show his process on Instagram. And I've been starting to do the same. And before, we were so private with that. So I really love to share the experiments and the process of my laboratory. So you're sharing the process? Yes. It's not a secret? It's not a secret. And the people show layers. and movement and how they change the painting the day next uh, so that's amazing it's really lovely process is er everything i mean you you just go to the opening and you see the piece done and okay it's beautiful I, you did really well but how you did that well, i would like to have, have a conversation with the person who did that what kind of book are you reading what music are you reading and listening and while are you working and so it's like 
Amen. This is life. It's not the peace done. Mm -hmm. Yes. That was perfect. That was what my show is all about. <laughs> <laughs> done. However exciting the process is, it is the finished work that is consumed. There are no rules in art, and the same goes for studio visits. They can be complete successes or complete failures. I leave you with one last point from Daniel Buren's essay. Quote, Nevertheless, other operations indispensable to the functioning of galleries and museums occur in this private place. For example, it is here that the art critic, the exhibition organizer, or the museum director or curator may calmly choose among the works presented by the artist those to be included in this or that exhibition, this or that collection, this or that gallery. The studio is thus a convenience for the organizer. He may compose his exhibition according to his own desire and not that of the artist, although the artist is usually perfectly content to leave well enough alone, satisfied with the prospect of an exhibition. The chance is minimized, since the organizer has not only selected the artist in advance, but also selects the works he desires in the studio itself. The studio is thus also a boutique where we find ready-to-wear art. Pablo, thank you so much for having me in your studio today. I'm oh, really happy and I, I, I really give you my best success for you on this show. Thank you. Thank you, Alison. Thank you so much. Everything moves quickly in New York City. Since the recording of this show, Alberto now has his studio in the Lower East Side, and Pablo has just lost his studio lease. At the moment, this works out for him, considering the many exhibitions he has around the world with his platform, Candor 13. Candor 13 is a networking collaborative established in 2015 for artistic production and exhibition, which uses different spaces to develop diverse practices. I decided to do this first studio show as I too look for a new studio, one that has good light and space to spread out in, outside of my home and within a community and with ventilation. I leave you with these lines from Musa Meyer's memoir about her father, Night Studio, a memoir of Philip Guston. Everyone carries a room about inside him, wrote Franz Kafka. My parents liked to delay our return to New York City as long as possible each fall, waiting until the cold weather outweighed their desire for quiet and privacy. When I was 12, my parents decided that I could spend the summer in my father's old studio. My room, the room I carry inside me, is that studio in Woodstock. The place had history, a raw, workmanlike smell of paint and turpentine, my father's legacy. It was more than just a room, it was a studio, a place for creative work. I took this idea very seriously." End quote. I do too. Thank you for listening to New York City Arts Radio. You can stream this and other episodes for free on our website, newyorkcityartsradio.com. There, you can also submit your email or follow us on Facebook and Twitter or mostly anywhere else. I referenced a few books in this episode. They are cataloged on our website for further reading. Our utmost gratitude goes out to our guests, Pablo Gianzana and Alberto Barea. This episode of New York City Arts Radio is made by sound designer John Wiggins, who created the original score and makes the whole show balance, and me, Alison Malinsky-Villalta, producer and editor. For their unwavering support, advice, and patience, thank you to Tim Brain, John Wiggins, Chris Murtha, Yolanda and the Biblioteca Agustí Centelles, and Norman Villalta.